Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about an exciting experimental treatment for patients with type 1 diabetes called islet cell transplantation. Before I introduce our guest, let me first say this episode is made possible through an unrestricted educational grant from Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Thank you for your support. Joining me today to help us better understand islet cell therapy is Dr. David Bidal, a practicing endocrinologist and assistant professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Bidal. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So let us start, I guess, at the very beginning. What are pancreatic islets? Pancreatic islets are microorganisms comprising endocrine cells. They have various types of endocrine cells that secrete different hormones. Most importantly, it's the home for the alpha and the beta cells that play an essential role and are critical for glucose homeostasis. The alpha cells being the ones that secrete glucagon and the beta cells being the ones that secrete insulin. And indeed, it is actually the beta cells, the ones that are the target of the autoimmune attack, which ultimately leads to type 1 diabetes. So we're already starting to see a little bit of a relationship with type 1 diabetes and these islet cells. So how are the islet cells used to treat type 1 diabetes? And where do the islet cells used in transplantation come from? The purpose of islet cells for treatment of type 1 diabetes is because they want to replace the loss of the beta cells. So in a patient that has type 1 diabetes, they have beta cell loss, and they make either none or very minute amounts of insulin production. And the strategy here is to replace that by providing the islets, and again, to replace the beta cells to allow the recipient to again have their own insulin production and therefore improve and stabilize their glucose control. And the islet cells come from deceased donors. It is a donor that has donated their organs, and therefore, through a process of harvesting the pancreas, the islets are then removed through an isolation technique where we separate them from the rest of the pancreatic tissue. And it is those islets that are ultimately transplanted into a recipient, and they are lodged into the liver. Usually in transplants, patients need to take immunosuppression medication to help prevent the body from rejecting the transplant. Is that true in islet cell transplantation also? And if so, how might that complicate treatment? It is true also in islet transplantation because those cells come from a different human being. So we have a human subject, we have a donor. Where the pancreas is harvested, the cells are isolated and the cells transplanted. And because they come from a different human being, the recipient will identify them and recognize them as foreign and will try to destroy them. So in order to prevent that rejection of these transplanted cells, we need to use um, immunosuppression, which is similar to the immunosuppression that you will have for another organ transplant, such as a pancreas or a kidney. So in the past, steroids were a hallmark of immunosuppression. And you can imagine the impact that I can have in a patient with diabetes as the blood sugars will go high because of the effect of the steroids. Fortunately, in allied transplantation, the current immunosuppressive strategies are steroid sparing or steroid free. So we do not use steroids in allied transplantation. So at least we eliminate that effect on glucose control. Nonetheless, the immunosuppressant drugs may still have an impact 
in terms of insulin production or insulin resistance and complicating a little bit perhaps the management of patients. But if an adequate mass of islets is transplanted, patients can do quite well and several of them can actually become insulin independent. Right now, islet cell transplantation, from what I've seen, is considered an experimental treatment by the FDA. First of all, what does that mean? <laughs> and what is needed for this therapy to no longer be considered experimental? Indeed, islet transplantation, and I have to highlight this, in the United States, is still an experimental treatment. In Europe, in Canada, it is already approved as a therapeutic strategy for a subset of patients with type 1 diabetes. But in the United States, it's still experimental, meaning it can only be done under the umbrella of a clinical trial. So a doctor cannot just prescribe or a patient can request an islet transplantation. It needs to be done, again, under the umbrella of a clinical trial. So to understand how we can move from this being experimental to a clinical strategy that is available for patients, we need to delve a little bit deeper and understand how islets are regulated by the FDA. So as the first to an organ transplant, such as a liver, a kidney, or a heart, that is regulated, again, as an organ, islets are regulated as tissue by the FDA, with some particular restrictions, and because it's ultimately viewed as a drug product. And therefore, you need to submit to the FDA an investigational new drug application. Clinical trials need to be conducted to determine safety and efficacy. And a phase three trial needs to be done, again, to demonstrate safety and efficacy of this product. Once that's done, which already has been concluded, and as a matter of fact, islet transplantation has undergone multiple clinical trials. And again, a phase three trial was done and demonstrated safety and efficacy. The next step before this therapy can move to being reimbursed and something that can be offered to patients is the submission of a biological license application. The caveat here is the following. The biological license application is a costly application because it will require then that each particular site or center that wants to offer this as a therapeutic option to patients will need to pay millions of dollars to get this approval because a lot of changes need to happen in the infrastructure of the sites and the manufacturing facilities. You see, once these islets are being regulated as if they were a drug product, there are certain criteria that need to be met before they are released. It's like looking at a particular drug that is being manufactured that needs to be consistent in the purity, sterility, potency. And all of that requires for the facilities to change currently to fulfill FDA criteria. But there are other caveats in that as the first two drug batches and lots that are manufactured outside an ex vivo, islets are not done as such. They are procured from a deceased donor. Depending on the characteristics of the donor, there may be variability. You may not get the same amount of islets from one isolation to the other. And again, the cost of a biologic license application is extremely high because of all the infrastructure changes that will be required to meet with the FDA criteria. And in addition to that, the centers that have expertise in islet transplantation and that conducted the phase three trial are academic centers that do not have the means essentially to cover the costs of a biologic license application. 
So we're a little bit stuck, unfortunately, at this point moving forward, unless again, a site is able to submit a biologic license application, in which case, if it's approved, they will be able, but only that site to provide ILIS. So it sounds like on the knowledge front, we're pretty close, but there are still a lot of barriers still in place, at least from the US side of things, to be able to see this kind of therapy used more widely and with full FDA approval. And it, it sounds like there might be some other options in the future that might lower some of those barriers or might help out. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. I will ask about the future of this later on. But for now, I'm going to shift gears. I'm just going to talk about islet cell transplantation specifically and, and who is a good candidate for this. So is it for anyone with type 1 diabetes? And if not, who are the best candidates for this therapy? Islet transplantation is not for anyone with type 1 diabetes at this point because it does involve the need of immunosuppression and there are risks associated with immunosuppression. Someone might argue we have great technologies nowadays. We have insulin, different insulin analogs. This has been an evolution in diabetes technologies that are quite successful. So who is this therapy for? Clearly, we need to have the patients in which we could say the treatment perhaps outweighs the risk of the immunosuppression. And those are the patients that are more at risk and perhaps have a higher mortality risk. And therefore, this is at this point restricted to patients that have impaired hypoglycemia awareness, that is, they cannot adequately sense when the blood sugars are low, and those that are experiencing severe hypoglycemic episodes. Because again, in those patients, those patients have actually a high mortality risk with numbers that have been associated up to 10% of mortality if you have episodes of severe hypoglycemia. So again, those are the main factors or criteria that are required for a patient to be considered for an eye transplant. They need to have hypoglycemia and awareness, and they need to have severe episodes of hypoglycemia. And in addition, those, they need to be patients who have failed standard of care, right? They cannot just be any newcomers that are having severe hypoglycemia or hypoglycemia awareness. They need to have evidence that interventions with standard of care have been attempted and they have failed and they're still at risk. And in those patients, we can clearly justify the use of immunosuppression and provide it with an transplant to improve the glucose control and abolish the occurrence of severe hypoglycemia. So you talked a little bit about the, the risks that come with immunosuppression. Is that the major risk? Are there other risks with islet cell transplantation? So islet cell transplantation, there are risks associated with the procedure itself and clearly with immunosuppression. The good news, I think, is that we've been doing islet transplantation for decades in the context of clinical trials, and we have learned a lot. Islets are lodged in the liver. We typically do this through a percutaneous approach where the islets are then transfused in a tributary of the portal vein system. It can also be done laparoscopically as well, going through the portal system. And once you do the percutaneous approach, and again, another important aspect is that once you put these cells in the vessel, because again, they're infused within a vessel, the tributary of the portal system, the cells can easily get clumps of red blood cells and they actually form clots and the cells will ultimately die because of this instant blood-mediated inflammatory response. You get all this clot formation around the eyelid. So they need to be heparinized. You need to avoid these clots that will form by heparinizing the patient and heparinizing the eyelids. And therefore, you have a risk of bleeding because you need to puncture the liver to get into the portal mm -hmm. system. But we know that the risk of bleeding is there, and there are interventions that we take care of to seal the tract after the needle is removed. And we have fluoroscopy to guide 
the interventional radiologists when they are putting the needle and trying to get into the portal system. So I think those risks associated with the procedure, we've learned a lot over the past decades, and we can minimize. Clearly, the risk cannot be completely taken away, but we can successfully minimize the risk. And we monitor 24 hours later, we do an ultrasound of the liver, make sure that everything is fine. A week later, we do another ultrasound, make sure that there's no bleeding, no problems. So again, from that perspective, we're good. It's a procedure that carries, as compared to a pancreas transplant, for instance, a much lower risk. And then you have the risk associated with the immunosuppression. But the immunosuppression risk is the same, and it will be similar to any other organ transplant. And we monitor closely. That is important also that patients need to be monitored closely because for side effects, not only for side effects, but also to make sure that we're achieving the target levels of the immunosuppression that will allow for the immune system not to reject the iris and therefore for the graft to not be rejected and, uh, and to maintain metabolic control. So those are the main potential risks associated with islet transplantation. You mentioned earlier that islet cell transplantation is already being done in other countries and that clinical trials have been going on for some time. In general, how successful is islet cell transplantation as a treatment for type 1 diabetes? Islet transplantation is very successful. What we have seen in centers that have expertise that have been conducting this for, for years. Um, it's about 70% insulin independence, 70 to 80% on average is the insulin independence at one year. And at five years, insulin independence rates can be as high as 50%, similar to pancreas transplantation in patients that their immunosuppressive strategy consists of potent lymphodepleting agents and TNF-alpha blockade. But again, this is in the context of centers with expertise and using this sort of immunosuppression. But that's from the perspective of insulin independence. But we view allet transplantation not only from a perspective of insulin independence. A major goal for a patient with type 1 diabetes receiving this therapy is improvement in metabolic control. And we do have patients where a graft function persists for decades. Um, by graft function, I mean that the graft is still producing insulin not enough to maintain the patient insulin-free, the patients still need to inject insulin, but clearly less doses than what they were injecting before the transplant. But because they still have insulin production from the surviving graft decades later, glucose control is much better, and you can continue to eliminate almost completely hypoglycemia, which is the main reason for which they initially got the transplant. So you still maintain a metabolic success even if the patients are not insulin independent. And that can okay. be for decades. I know it's hard to predict the future, but how do you see or how do you even hope to see the knowledge and practice of islet cell transplantation evolving over the next three to five years? In the United States, unfortunately, from what I described before, we do have a little bit of um, some limitations in terms of how we can move this into something that would be reimbursed because of the issues pertaining to the biological license application, um, clearly some sites may be able to do this now or in the future and that can move forward. But again, it would be restricted probably to very few sites that have the means to do that. The way that I see in the future is that islet transplantation, human island transplantation will happen less and less. And there's another caveat here is that donor availability remains an issue. So keeping that in mind then, 
it, it appears that what will really thrive in the near future is, and we actually currently have it available in clinical trials, is the development of stem cell islets. Those can be essentially developed on demand. So it already overcomes the barrier of donors. You can develop on demand from a particular stem cell line islets with the required number of beta cells that you need for transplantation. So that's unique, right? To have a source that you can create on demand. But now what is required is to demonstrate that this has efficacy and that it is safe. So the clinical trials are being conducted at this point. And so far we do have already preliminary data of success with these stem cell islets producing insulin and improving metabolic control in subjects on a current clinical trial that is being performed. And I'm fortunate to be a part of that trial. And so what do I see in the next few years? Uh, stem cell islets will continue to move forward, being it as cells that are transplanted in the liver or with encapsulation techniques to minimize the needs of immunosuppression. Because again, another limiting factor for this particular cellular therapy is the need for long-term immunosuppression. And that also restricts the patients that we can give it to. And if we develop immune tolerance strategies, we have no problems with the source of the product, then this could be applicable to a larger patient population. But again, at this point, we will have in the next five years advancements in the stem cell arena of islet transplantation. And hopefully we'll also have advancements in how these cells may work in encapsulated devices that prevent them or shield them from the immune system. And if those are successful, this will likely move forward rapidly and ultimately provide an option of treatment for a patient with type 1 diabetes. And in parallel, I'm hopeful that research also continues to move forward in Europe and in, and in Canada where this is already approved and it doesn't have to go, it's no longer experimental. So it will continue to evolve in Europe. Again, they may be able to test other immune tolerance strategies and, and hopefully things may be revisited here in the U.S. later on. But I am optimistic and I think the future is bright with this cellular therapy. Well, we are just about out of time. This is a fascinating topic. And my thanks to you, Dr. Baidal, for joining us and sharing your expertise. Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about islet cell therapy and type 1 diabetes, I invite you to check out an article from Endocrine News, the magazine, that covered this topic brilliantly earlier this year. The article is titled, Islets in the Stream. Could Stem Cell Technology Be an Eventual Cure for Type 1 Diabetes? And includes quotes from Dr. Daniel Drucker. We'll link to that article in today's episode description. We'll be back soon with another fascinating dive into the world of endocrinology. Until then, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.